Welcome to Grab 'em by the Songs, the podcast. I'm Kim Limbo. And I'm Maya Dorn. Together, we're bringing you some of the most incredible women songwriters and musicians we know. We're here to give women a platform to tell our stories about life, creativity, and the journey into music as a language. We hope once you listen that you'll feel inspired, lifted up, and maybe even grabbed by a song. Today's episode, we are featuring the ukulele superstar, Emily Yates. Emily Yates spent the first part of her adult life as an army public affairs minion, writing heartwarming news stories about the Iraq war to help build fellow soldiers' morale. Two years after her release from the military in 2008, she learned to play the ukulele and decided to merge her dual passions for writing and music, quickly realizing that this would be the best way to get her many opinions out to the world. She set to work writing dozens of ditties and playing them for unsuspecting strangers who luckily were delighted. In 2012, she recorded her first album, I've Got Your Folk Songs Right Here, a fun romp through myriad ideas ranging from human decency to sexual expression to foreign policy. She released her second album, Folk in Your Face, in 2014, and now travels all over the country spreading joy and disillusionment with her songs and stories. Welcome, Emily. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here in our fabulous Oakland studio. So lovely to be here. Yeah. Having recently moved away, I'm so happy to be back here. So I know that you are, um, you play ukulele, and um, we will feature some of your songs in this episode. Uh, They're quirky, and they're funny, and they're in your face, and they're naughty, and they're adult, and they're not. And you find that way to take that snark and just put it right out Love there. It. I do my best. Yeah, it's You're like the snark fairy. Snark fairy. Oh, man. I feel like that's an honor that I still like. I, I would I would love to like one day be be able to like hear little girls talking about how the snark fairy visited them when they were young <laughs> and they like grew this attitude. We just birthed a movement. I would say one one of my favorite snark fairies is probably someone that maybe you've heard of being from the East Coast. Um, but have you ever heard of Mary Prankster? Uh, not not the Mary Pranksters. No, but Mary Prankster. You have yeah. heard. You're the first person I've said Mary Prankster to who hasn't been like, I've heard of the Mary Pranksters. I'm like, no, 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 no. Mary Prankster, I don't remember how I discovered her. I think through, oh, when I was deployed, the first time I was deployed, um, I had a blog that I kept and I made a lot of friends on the internet. This was in 2005 and like that was kind of new, internet friends and blogs. I didn't call it a blog because um, it was a diary because it was precious. <laughs> it was my online diary. And one of my online diary friends, um, we were fucking special. And there are some of my favorite people in the world. Some I'm still in touch with many of them today. And one of them sent me this amazing mix CD. It was like a three disc mix. And it had Mary Prankster's song, Mercy Fuck on it and I listened to that and I was like I think she said fuck like 50 times in that song that's impressive you know and it was such a sweet song and I was like that's she's amazing and so then I went on LimeWire 
as we did in 2005 <laughs> when I got back from deployment and I got a bunch of Mary Prankster songs and I discovered that she wasn't gigging anymore um, and she had only made like a couple of albums and I absorbed them all and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is like fun, cute music because a lot of it was cute. Some of it was more punk rock and that was fun too. But it was some of it was just like really cute but she would say things that I was like, oh, that's exactly what I want to say. Um, and yeah, so I listened to her a lot. And in addition to just loving all the comedy that I've loved growing up, which has always been the most profane comedy out there that I could find or hear about. You might be from Texas. You might be from Tennessee. You might be from way up north in the Yukon Territory. You might be from London or you might be from Peru It doesn't matter where you're from You all like to watch people screw Porn is a unifier It's funny because like, I didn't set out to be a songwriter at all Particularly, I set out to be a writer And then I learned to play the ukulele and I started writing songs And the first song I wrote was really snarky and really vulgar and it was really fun to write it and sing it. And then the second song I wrote was less vulgar, but also really snarky. And it just sort of happened that the songs I was writing were like that. And I wasn't like, I'm going to be a comic songwriter. Just like I wasn't thinking like, I'm going to be a comic writer, but I love singing and I love writing. And then I learned to play the ukulele and I was like, ooh, <laughs> now I can do all these things together. <laughs> and, um, and it just happened that, you know, when I write, it tends to come out that way too. I find that it, the things that I'm talking about go down easier when they're fun and funny to think about. Like, I, I like to write longer form essays and more serious songs too, but I feel like it's more relatable to people like I wasn't thinking it this far through when I started. I was just like, I'm just gonna write this song. This song's called I Don't Wanna Have a Baby. Blah, you know? <laughs> like many modern women, I have a lot of options. Now that I am living on my own, I've got a lot of facets and I've even But I'm turning my attentions to the home. I don't care if nobody relates to it or anything. Um, I, you know, I don't, I, it's just for me. And same with, you know, trying not to be a dick. That was actually just like a, a retort to a friend who was like, so you're writing songs. And he was like, Did you write a song called I Don't Have a Baby? I was like, yeah. My next one's going to be called Try Not To Be A Dick. <laughs> and I went for a walk with my dog and I was like, what would that song sound like? And because I was like, that would be fun. And it was all, you know, I love writing songs and playing them for people but I never like thought it through that carefully so the songs that I write are just the songs that come out just have a baby it's just a cute and godly way for me to make the life I'm leading feel a little bit more meaningful 
Put every single scream out of its needy little mouth Just have a baby And no one can call me crazy My direction might be hazy now But just you wait until I have a baby Recently, you know, I've had snarky songs come out of me But also less snarky ones And it's, a lot of songwriters will say like Oh, I don't know how to like play funny songs because I'm used to playing all these feeling songs and I'm like well I don't know how to play songs about my feelings because that's scary <laughs> like I would so much rather sing jokes or even like little winks you know wink wink nudge nudge type situation um, than you know put my heart on my sleeve like that usually because it's just my not my first instinct so I'm you know I'm trying to get better at finding balance because I feel like there's a need for all kinds of songs out there. And I think I'll probably be um, better at communicating if I learn to do it more with a, a, diff a better mix. Maybe not better, but like I just like to have a good balance. It's, you know, always trying to find it. I wrote different songs six years ago than I'm writing now. And six years ago is when I started writing songs. So <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, it's ever evolving. Yeah, so mm -hmm. it's like who knows what's gonna happen over the next few years. We're winning, and I thought, <laughs> well, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> we really are. Life is all about winning individual moments. Yes, I think absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but it, so it's been an interesting year, especially having moved and being in a new place after you know eight years sort of Oakland was my landing place after the military and it felt super mellow after Baghdad <laughs> you know it was like people were like Oakland aren't you scared and I'm like I just came from a war yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm not they're not shooting at me you know it's like and if they are it's probably by accident I'm just in the wrong place at the wrong time you know and so it was just a different perspective that I had then and then you know I ended up moving out here um just maybe six months after I got out of the military. And um, really, it was exactly what I needed for that time. And then over the years, I got to realize that I needed something different for the next phase if I was going to sort of, you know, A, like heal from a lot of the old trauma that I'd been dealing with. Like being busy all the time is a great way to not deal with trauma overtly. Instead, you're just dealing with it passively and torturing all your friends. <laughs> I know I know nothing about that. <laughs> None of us do. <laughs> Not most women, at, at least. You know, and so that was another thing, like sort of finding my identity after being in the military in a very masculine, hyper-masculine environment. And then moving out to the Bay and, I, you know, dating a musician because you know, I didn't play music then, and he was involved in this whole music community where there were no other veterans and definitely no other women veterans. And I was like, whoa, okay, look at all these, like, there's like all of these very like feminine type women here. And I don't know, like I try not to use overly gendered, you know, terminology, but I think it was just different for me having come from an environment where being like very direct and very confident and very like you know independent was something that was respected um to moving out here and having it be something that was like intimidating 
<laughs> and people are like, why are you telling me what you mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't help it. I'm sorry. Like, this is what I do, you know? And, and even in the military, like, I think that a lot of that also is from being from the East Coast because, yeah. you know, there are plenty of people in the military who aren't great direct communicators. It's just, it's also about the way you carry yourself. And, um, you know, I was still figuring out how to carry myself not as not a soldier. And and especially because I didn't agree with what I was doing in the military and I didn't relate to it. I didn't feel like a good, you know, quote unquote, good soldier. When I was a younger girl, I thought I'd go explore. So I signed up for the army and I went away to war. Before they shipped me off, though they had to train me right. They offered me their best advice so I'd be fit to fight. They said, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. That's what the army pounded into my mind. Keep your head down low, don't volunteer to go nowhere. Cheat the system and you'll beat it every time. I thought it sounded funny, but I gave it a try. When they asked an honest question, I responded with a lie. I felt like I was, I did a good job of playing soldier for the military, but I didn't agree with what I was doing. I didn't um, drink the Kool-Aid. You know, I was like, as I've told people before, like I was helping mix the Kool-Aid. I was not drinking it, <laughs> you know, because as my job, it was part, part of my job to, to spin what was going on into something more palatable for everyone to feel good about. So I knew that that's what I was doing. So I couldn't, you know, also be taken in by that and um especially once i got out of the military and met up with a bunch of other veterans who were doing anti-war work and started learning more about um just the context of u.s militarism and um, foreign policy and um the ways that you know the iraq war was uh, forced on the american people and which I kind of knew, but I was in basic training and like I was in training during from June 2002 to December 2002, which was like most of the ramp up to the war. I wasn't getting newspapers. I was being taught how to spin what was about to happen, you know, <laughs> and um, but I wasn't thinking of it like I didn't have any political background, but it was um, I, w I was learning how to look at my experience from being outside of it and um, learning how much I didn't know, you know? Most of us in the military don't know shit. Cheat the system and you'll beat it every time. Cheat the system <laughs> You know, like you're recruited usually time. out of high school. How did that happen? Were you recruited in high school or was it, did you walk into it for no reason? You know, it's funny. It's actually, speaking of the book I'm working on, I'm working on a story that's sort of around this, the, my initial enlistment and how it all kind of happened. But um, the nutshell is that a recruiter called me while I was, I had signed up for a community college and I was doing community college. Was that OCC? Yes, indeed. Oh, my God. Onondaga, Onondaga Community, community College. college. We what, what? grew up in the same, uh, Emily and I. <laughs> 
are not the same age, but we definitely <laughs> grew up in the same area, like literally the same area. Literally. About 10 minutes from each other. Yeah. Too close for comfort. Too close. So close but, yet so far, really. But we met in a little sunset uh, coffee shop playing yep. music. Completely and randomly. I love how so we great. magnetized each other. Yeah, it was really beautiful. Toward each Please other. continue with oh. that. Well, OCC, as you know, um, is a um, depressing place to go to school. Not because the classes are terrible or the teachers. You know, I had some really great professors there. I also had some questionable professors there. Um, But it just is not a pretty place to go to school. It's not an inspiring place to go to school. And I was only going there because... After I had dropped out of reform school um, before graduating, my parents were were upset with me, and they said I had gotten into a school in in Pennsylvania, Northeastern, and I was going to study journalism. Oh, wow. And uh, and so they were like, "Well, you didn't finish your reform school, and so you uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna send you." to Northeastern so you can go to community college and you know we'll reimburse you for your classes but you know you've got to make your own way here and and um you know this was before I had had a chance to really communicate with my parents about why I had left that reform school um which were a lot of reasons that I'm still processing (laughs) and um and so I left that school and I didn't have any money. I didn't have any ID or anything. So I was basically rebuilding my life from scratch. And um, I had been living with my parents, um, f- again, for about six months. Six months when the uh, recruiter called me. What year was that? That was, uh, he called me in December 2001. Okay. So shortly after 9-11... I had been. I was at OCC when I found out about 9/11. Yeah. I was in my American history class, wow. in fact, wow. which was trippy. Yeah. She was like, "Class is dismissed." <laughs> and my aunt lived in New York City at the time, and I was really stressed out because I knew she worked down there in the World Trade Center area. And um, and that was when I first started thinking about like, "Whoa, what's going on here?" Like I had not thought about any kind of politics or foreign policy, anything mm-hmm. at all. Because um, I had been, first of all, in lockdown for a year and a half. And then since I had been out, I had basically just been trying to like work and prove myself to my parents so that I wouldn't end up homeless. Um, you know, because it was just one of those things where it was, it was a complicated situation. And so I, when I got the call from the recruiter, I, um, I figured... You know, he was like, he said, what are you, what are you studying in school? Because he, I believe, had gotten my information from OCC because they can do that, I think. And um, I'm sure they sell their lists. I'm sure they do. And, um, and so I said, you know, I want to study journalism. And he said, I can get you a journalism job in the Army. And I thought, what? Like, I've never heard of that before. But like... And I was, I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, um, you'll get trained. They'll train you and you'll get paid like $26,000 a year. And this, and to like a 19 year old who was dead broke living at home with mom and dad in Syracuse, I was like, well, if I want to be a journalist, the best way to do it would be to go where the action is. And so, you know, we had just started a war with Afghanistan. 
Um, so I, th- I thought I would probably end up going to war with Afghanistan because that was what was on the radio and the news, you know. Um, it was a, it was one of those situations where I just didn't <coughs> know anything. Uh, except for what I was seeing on the news. And there was like the big burst of patriotism after 9-11. And it's not like I was feeling super patriotic, but I wasn't not feeling patriotic. I didn't know that the United States was like the biggest terrorist in the world at that point. (laughs) You know, it wasn't until I got out of the military and started learning about that through anti-war work and then through going back to school to study the Middle East that I finally started really getting an idea for what I was getting myself into by signing up for the military and nobody like recruiters bank on on new potential recruits not knowing anything like they're used to them being in high school like you're working on high school for most or either if you're not in high school then you're probably struggling to survive either way you're not tuning into politics for the most part if you're deeply recruitable So I was in that sort of sweet spot where I like, I had a lot of like, I had a lot of interest in making more of myself, but I didn't see a whole lot of ways to do it. Um, And I didn't want to stay at OCC. I was running out of money, you know, because I was paying paying upfront and my parents were reimbursing me, but it was getting more expensive. And I was like, well, you know, this isn't going to work. I'm not making any more than minimum wage. I don't have a resume. I don't have high school. Like, I had a GED, you know. Um, So anyway, it was a big old complicated mess, um, but it just seemed like the best option um, given what I was dealing with at the time. And I can't say that in the same mindset... I wouldn't make the same decision again because I really, I I actually looked into the Peace Corps. I was like, I don't want to be in the army. Like this seems, that seems silly. I've already been like institutionalized, you know? We were not at war yet. Like we had just started the war with Afghanistan. Essentially, like, I don't know anybody. I never heard anyone speculate about it. Nobody in my family ever speculated about it. It was not a thing that people were talking about. I think it was assumed, go in, get Osama bin Laden, whatever, get out. And then, you know, that was sort of all that I knew of it. And then I left for basic training in June of 2002. And by the time I got out of basic training, people were talking about Iraq. And, like, The Onion, I was reading The Onion at that time. It was one of the few things that kept me, like, questioning. You know, plus, I, you know, I, like, I loved Bob Dylan, and, like, I was subversive at heart. I just was trying to be practical, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so um, so I, uh, I was reading The Onion, and I remember um, the headline being, uh, Bush announces exit strategy from Iraq. We'll go through Iran. <laughs> and I remember thinking, like... Yeah, like, this is all really ridiculous, you know? (laughs) But at the same time, like, it was my job to be, like, we were the good guys, you know? It was my job to be, like, writing good stories about all the great humanitarian work we were doing. And, you know, I didn't deploy right away. I didn't deploy till 2005. Um, But even up until that point, from, you know, late 02 until 
then um, there were people, I worked on the Post newspaper, and we would edit stories and, you know, put them in the newspaper. And so all the stories were good news, amazingly, you know, all the great things that we were doing. And, you know, that's to be expected, but I think something I've realized after the fact that I didn't realize then was just how much the um, military and government public affairs uh, campaign was infecting the media mm. and how how much the Iraq war especially and the Afghanistan war um, have been media wars, information wars, you know, because they control... Um, I, one of our jobs in public affairs was to learn how to do media relations. Like, how do you talk to the media? You know, you don't ever give up anything about the mission, obviously. So they start with that. So it's like, of course, we're not going to give give up secure information. Why would we do that? Why would they want secure information that would get people killed? So it's all about protection that's why like when you know whenever you see leaks come out it's all about like who's being endangered it's like well who was being endangered by what you're doing initially everyone you know (laughs) 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 so (laughs) it's like that that's kind of the thing like reporting on the truth became a danger to operational security because it would make us look vulnerable and it would make us look like we were not in control of the situation. And for morale purposes, and to keep soldiers engaged in fighting and to keep people enlisting, because enlistment numbers were real low right around then, there had to be a steady stream of we're winning, even when we weren't. And so we, um, during... You'd be hard-pressed to find any member of the media who had any access to um, combat areas in Iraq or Afghanistan without military escort unless they were, like, embedded in the community and, like, independent. Like, because you had to be embedded with the military or else you were completely on your own. You had no security. You had, like, you were just on your own. So if you wanted to have your gear and, like, your armed detail and, you know, basically make sure that you weren't going to get killed or kidnapped, um, you had to embed with the military. Well, once you're embedded with the military, the military decides who you're going to talk to, where you're going to go. And part of my job was to prep soldiers on how to be interviewed. You know, what can you say to the media? What should you never say to the media? You know, never talk about failures, never talk about anything going wrong, never imply incompetence, you know, always express devout faith in your commander in chief. It's all very like propaganda, you know, and this is so the military wasn't restricting technically restricting the access of the media, but they were controlling the whole theater of operations and making sure that um, the media were only getting to certain designated units that had been prepped for their arrival. And if anybody in the media wrote or reported anything that made the military look bad, oh, whoops, you lose your access. You can't come back. Sorry, we don't want you. And like, I remember, you know, I wasn't the one making that kind of decision. My superior officers were. But I remember them always talking about like, oh, well, that person wrote bad stuff about us. So nope, no more of them. They don't get a pass. And it's like, 
Well, we've been controlling information from the inside, you know, and obviously the information that war that got um, us into the wars to begin with that allowed people to feel at all positive about how their outcome was going to be um, was all, you know, that was top down, you know, there's so, you know, it's all been really uh, good for my sense of cynicism. Like, it's super healthy these days. <laughs> I have got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. So I looked back to a time before when people spoke out even more and I found one commonality you see they sang it in a major key a minor key in a place that it was a heroic decision on your part I'm sure from the community perspective mm-hmm. to enlist like it was very much you know like it's a it's a military area military are friendly very pro military where we grew up yeah. and you are not anti government um, mm-hmm. you are fearing you feel the, fear the government for sure mm-hmm. you are afraid of your government you're taught to be afraid of the government mm-hmm. but you don't speak publicly anti government sentiment so i'm curious mm-hmm. like has there been any kind of backlash from you know from my community yeah from the community you grew up with um you know it's interesting it's actually been um let's see i would say the main backlash that i felt was more on a personal level when i started paying attention to what was going on and realizing that people i certain some people that i knew back home were really not on the same page um and weren't were either not paying attention or were being like sort of willfully ignorant. Um, and I probably backlashed at them more than they backlashed at me. You know, I didn't start doing public anti-war work until I had been out of the military a little while. Um, but generally, you know, most of the time being a veteran saves you from some of the backlash of being anti-war because people are like well you've been there you've done it you can you know they give you a little bit more space Mm -hmm. if I was you know just and I don't know like what the outcome would have been if I hadn't been in that situation but my family has been really supportive um and and, uh you know I have one family member who is on the much older side who is a you know supports the president (laughs) and that's all at least that I know of and that's and but it hasn't I don't think she really pays much attention to what I do um politically or you know to much of my political opinions actually when she did (laughs) uh get on Facebook at, at one point and she started she actually started an argument with me about um Israel Palestine and how there was just nobody there before and I was like ah Uh, you know because that was when I was in school studying the Middle East and I was like you don't know what you're talking about and but that was like a rare case and um for the most part people at home have been super um 
have been super supportive and uh you know even you know i went through a whole lot of personal conflict with the law a few years ago um do you want to talk about that at all i can talk about it a little bit um it's a pretty good story (laughs) (laughs) now that i've got some distance from it it's a lot easier to talk about um (laughs) yeah well so i was um i'll try to nutshell it because it can really get a little bit convoluted but um I, a few years ago, went to a protest in Philadelphia where I was scheduled to, um, I was actually there for an anti-war protest, but I was asked to stay uh, to play a song for the marijuana legalization protest that was happening later in the day. Uh, And so I was was standing there milling around in Philly. Uh, This is in the middle of my first cross-country tour. So I had my banjo and uh, and I was, uh, I was roughly <laughs> removed from the park by a couple of park rangers after they they uh, told me they were clearing the area. I asked them why they were clearing the area. They told me that was classified, and I thought they were joking, so I laughed. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so you're clearly kidding, so just tell me what you're here for. What are you doing? And um I did not have my uh, radar up at that time. I made the mistake of asking them to speak with their supervisor. So it's like, if you can't tell me, just find somebody who can tell me. Um, I don't want to get you in trouble, whatever, you know. And uh, and while I was waiting for the higher up to arrive, I turned my back to sort of address a crowd crowd of people that was gathering for the protest there. And... um, on the other side of the barricades that the rangers had erected around me and uh, around where I was standing, not just around me. Per- it wasn't my own personal barricade as much <laughs> as I would like to imagine that it's, I'm that much of a threat to the system. They didn't put my own personal barricade up. Uh, <laughs> Impressive, I was going to say. Right? Um, but they put up a barricade uh while I was standing in the area they were clearing and and so there was people gathering and I turned around to talk to them while my back was turned the park rangers instead of saying something helpful like you're under arrest and alerting me to their presence behind me they just grabbed me by the hands and wrists and dragged me uh, off to uh, federal detention where they charged me with assaulting them. And that was really fun. Um, and, and like a super fucked up sense that it, it was, uh, I really, I thought I was aware of how, um, you know, evil law enforcement officers could be. And, uh, you know, and I actually was sort of, I was thinking, well, I'm a white girl with a banjo. What are they going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, like I was I was counting on some privilege mm-hmm. to get me to to at least keep these people from assaulting me. I wasn't I didn't I thought maybe they would you know, they said we might have to we'll have to escort you out if you don't go. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, you know, that doesn't mean anything like what happened watching you leave or something right or like like or even like putting me in handcuffs and giving me a ticket um but at the very least telling me before they're going to do whatever they're going to do and um and so instead of doing that they grabbed me from behind and as a person who was trained in throwing an attacker off of me I attempted to throw my attackers off of me and that of course led to a lot of extra pain 
Mm. And uh, so I, you know, that was a really, uh, a really painful uh, thing to go through the arrest and then go through, um, you know, getting charged and having to go to trial. Well, I didn't have to go to trial, but I, I chose to go to trial because I was like, this is bullshit. This should never, this shouldn't know. And, um, and I think my lawyer didn't want to go to trial, so he didn't try very hard. Um, and now he's the Philadelphia DA, so there you go. <laughs> he's the liberal one, so. <laughs> when I was a kid, I learned about our Constitution's First Amendment. I learned about free speech and not to trust those who would end it. I even joined the army where I swore I would defend it. But all my efforts were in vain Cause it appears it's been suspended Something about a Patriot Act Guess real patriots don't need rights anymore You see, I went to the park in Philadelphia To protest the bombing of Syria Some rangers came up to me While I stood there in the shade They said, you better move along I said, why is that, did you say? They hadn't said I repeated with a smile The question I had asked them But still they just said Lady, you had better move your ass But I just kept on asking why While the people gathered round And when I turned my back so I was found guilty And I was put on probation for three years And fined $3,200 For three counts of assault one count of trespassing and one count of resisting arrest, the favorite. Um, and, uh, and, and I just got off probation, so um, finally. So it's part of why I feel a little more comfortable talking about it. Um, and so that whole process was a big deal for my family and me. And um, they were all very, um, very supportive. And, you know, it's like... Whatever happens when you're young, you know, whatever the circumstances are that get you to, you know, the place where you feel like you need to join the army because it's your last resort. It's nice to know that, like, when all, when when the shit hits the fan, your family will show up for you, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I was really lucky and I feel really, um, you know, I... It, it was good to know that even though I came from a somewhat conservative background... You know, I think mistrust of the government is a bipartisan thing. It's part of why we have the person in office that we have. Mm -hmm. And um, and so when someone's getting screwed over who doesn't seem to be doing anything particularly wrong, it helps people to pay attention to the fact that the whole system is fucked, you know? And it's not like it's broken. It's intentionally fucked. Um it's why logic doesn't work to get us out of these problems unless like logic starts being super profitable all of a sudden, <laughs> which uh, maybe for Bill Gates, I guess, maybe for, you know, I don't know, whoever, whoever the richest of the logic mongers are <laughs> these days. Um, the only logic to me these days seems like poetry. Mm. But poetry, unfortunately, doesn't make any money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's too useful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, think about it, though. Like, poetry doesn't make any money, and yet we are still quoting 
Sufis from a thousand years ago, like mm-hmm. it, or five hundred years ago. Like it doesn't make money, but it's it makes sense. It mm-hmm. makes <laughs> it makes but, sense. Oh my God. Wow, that's really <laughs> let's say let's say it in one spell swoop. Poetry. It doesn't it make, make money, money, but, but it, it makes sense. sense. <laughs> <laughs> we slay ourselves officially. We officially slay ourselves. You're our brave new leader. You're gonna about this, uh, especially my other artist and musician friends, um, it, about how you know music and art are the most valuable things out there. Like writing, you know, any kind of visual art, any kind of expressiveness is you know the most valuable thing that you can um, really bring to the world because that's how we evolve is by expressing you know we don't evolve by like staying in our lanes and you know just trucking off to our job every day and you know I did that thing of staying in my lane and trucking along to my job in the military every day um, for six years and it fucked my head you know in many different ways so now you know I'm able to get a lot of perspective that I didn't get, and that's really valuable. Um, But we really are in a place in our culture and our society and our economy right now where you can't just make a little bit of money and survive. Mm -hmm. So making a little bit of money and doing your art isn't an option. You have to be able to make way more than you should have to to survive. And it's bullshit. And, you know, and then meanwhile, people who are doing things that are granted super interesting and probably helping us evolve in other ways um you know like whether it's tech jobs or factory jobs that you know help help us have all the stuff that we like around us you know it's all there you know that those jobs might pay more but man it's it just I see it stealing people's souls all around me especially as I get older I think when I was younger it was it was a different thing because like so many people were still like really excited about the future and possibilities and then you get older and you see people just sort of settling into their realities and you're like wow I don't know if this is good for you or not and I don't think it would be good for me even though I would probably be more financially comfortable yeah well you're you're (laughs) right in that it used to be so much more doable to live a low-impact artistic existence. And the cost of living and all the other things have gone up so much that it's... Society's changed. No, everyone has to have, like, multiple side hustles, you know? It's part of why um, it felt like the right idea to move, because it was like... 
I'm not, I don't see my friends anymore and create art with them because they're busy trying to create art to make money or do whatever they can do to make money so they can keep living. And so we don't see each other. And so, so much of what's amazing about the Bay Area is at people coming together and collaborating and being creative together. And if everyone is having to live this like individualistic, like competition, like hyper competitive rat race, that's all based on statistics. And it's not based on whether the art is good or not. You know, it's just based on how many tickets you sell or, you know, how many likes you have. It's just, you never can win. You can never get to a place of comfort because there's always going to be somebody whose stats are better. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be somebody who's, you know, got like better logistics, who looks better on paper. But that's not how art, that's not what makes art beautiful. It's not what makes like an artist community thrive. And so it just seemed like, you know, it was, it was time to more focus on what can make the art thrive you know and since I'm really really lucky to be able to focus a lot of time and attention on that I was like well I don't want to sell myself short I don't want to sell anybody short who is going to support my music and my work because it you know it's it takes a lot of support and so it's you know I think the thing that most of us have not had the luxury of doing in a long time is focusing on art for art's sake Mm -hmm. and not having to care about um, how much you're getting paid for it. So, you know, I'm taking as much of my ability to invest time and energy into this art. Like, it's just, it needs to be, it needs to be about what's real and, you know, not just what is going to, put butts in the seats and Mm -hmm. not just what is going to pay the rent and because I get to say that I have to do it you know (laughs) I was interested you were speaking about your time in the military and as a you wanted to be a journalist and he told the recruiter that and he said, come to the army, we'll teach you how. So did, did they put you through basic training physically, but then also did they train you in journalism? How did that go? So the way they do it with all soldiers is who enlist um, is you go through basic training first. Um, and that is where you learn all of your soldier stuff. You know, like this is how you soldier. This is how you take orders and this is how you get yelled at. And this is how you work your body beyond the point of exhaustion and keep going. And, um, and it's all really important stuff for soldiers. Yes, you did. I did that first. And then after that, they send you to what they call advanced individual training or AIT. And, um, and they, uh, train you in whatever your job specialty is. So I, my job had two titles. One was print journalist and the other one was public affairs specialist Mm. because that's the same thing in the army. (laughs) And um, so I went to a 13 week, it was a 13 week course. I want to say it was a 13 week course. It was from September, uh, late August of um, 2002 to December of 2002. And it was a 
a joint service public affairs. It was called the Defense Information School, which doesn't sound ominous at all, especially when you shorten it to its acronym, quote unquote acronym, DINFOS, which is not a fucking acronym. <laughs> it's just a bunch of words together, letters together. Anyway, so it, sh- it should say a lot that like the public affairs training school was really poorly acronymed. <laughs> um, it was really just hilarious. But anyway, so we go to school there and I learned the tech technical aspects of journalism, how to write a news story, how to write a feature story, how to write, uh, you know, any, you know, any kind of news related piece, how to take photos, um, how to do newspaper design and layout, anything that was related at all to journalism. So normally, I mean, I never went to civilian journalism school. I don't know if they taught design and layout a lot in that school or if it was a separate thing. I guess it depends on the size of the paper you're working with or whatever. But um, we learned how to do every aspect of the job, but like in a very condensed form because it was only a short amount of school. And um, Did you learn how to write? Was that part of it? Well, I had already been writing for a long time like the reason I wanted to study journalism is because in my reform school I was in journalism class because the journalism teacher was one of the few staff members who actually kind of liked me and didn't have a problem with how sarcastic I was (laughs) he loved it actually he was like you're writing for me all the time and I was like okay great but the rest of the school was very anti that attitude I was actually put on a what they called a shun sanction for a number of weeks for being quote unquote too sarcastic. (laughs) They were just trying to beat everyone in submission and you were actually like this bright. And I wasn't like doing anything particularly wrong. I just had a friggin' personality, you know? And, and so it was funny because the, where I was excelling was in that realm in, you know, as a writer, as an expressive person, but then the rest of the school was much more geared toward, Um, beating me into shape and then the military was also like that it was like okay you need to write what we tell you to write but do it really well you know and um, so I had already been a writer before that I had already been doing somewhat journalistic writing but not really because journalism at the reform school was a lot like public relations too. (laughs) I didn't see the difference, you know? It was like, I was like, okay, this is the same thing. I'm writing positive, uplifting stories about an overall shitty place. (laughs) (laughs) Same diff, you know? Journalism! (laughs) It didn't didn't hit me. Like, nope, nope, not at all. So, um, yeah, so they, they taught us how to write what they wanted us to write well and um it was you know how to do interviews how to you know basically be a journalist without telling all of the truth and um without the truth part journalism is just bullshit it's just public relations you know it's fiction it is it's public relations which is fiction yeah generally so um it was just interesting that they called it by both titles so that we would be learn the two is interchangeable it wasn't interchangeable at all (laughs) so uh so yeah that was um it was an interesting training because i got good at writing journalistically 
but not being a journalist. Okay. And anytime I like ventured into real journalism by like kind of hinting at what the real story might be, they were like, you need to rewrite that. <laughs> so you were embedded, but no, it wasn't called embedded for you. You were just part of the military. So right. were you part of the combat? Well, I was deployed to one of the larger bases in Baghdad. It was by the Baghdad airport. It was called Victory Base Complex, <laughs> including Camp Liberty, Camp Victory, and, you know, a bunch of other, like, grand-sounding names, Camp Striker, you know, all of these wonderful things. And uh, it was one of the more secure bases um, there. So most of my risk was from indirect fire. Which, you know, is not, it's basically like when they're firing on us, but we're not firing on them. It's like, surprise, you're under attack. And um, so I didn't, I was not in hand to hand combat per se, but we were all in a combat situation to where, like, you know, if you hear an explosion, be glad that you heard it because it means it wasn't on you, mm. <laughs> you know? They called it the combat theater of operations <laughs> because there's no such thing as front lines. It's just it's a euphemism for yeah. yeah. So so yeah. So I was working mostly in um, on the base for both of my deployments as on the same base, which was really depressing and Groundhog Day ish. Oh. Um, because I wasn't expecting to go for the second deployment, so it was extra trippy. But um, while I was there, I was mostly working on newspaper design and layout. Um, and there were a few times when I went out and covered various stories that were going on, um, you know, various, like, either a patrol or a night raid or a, um, the constitutional referendum was happening while I was there in the, you know, one of the first Iraqi national elections. Um, so I covered the election and I, you know, um, stuff like that. But for the most part, I was restricted to the base because I made the mistake of being really fast at design and layout and a really anal retentive editor. <laughs> so they were like, we want you to stay here. And I was like, but I want to be a reporter. And they were like, yeah, no. Also, you have an attitude. Have you noticed? <laughs> sort of passion and ambition and drive that got me into the military to do that job actually kind of shot me in the foot as well. 
because it was just a little bit, you know, more than I knew how to harness at that point. And uh, yeah, so I did some reporting, a lot of newspaper design and layout, and some photography. And then I worked with every now and then doing media liaison work in which I would coach soldiers on what to say to the media or um, kind of babysit the media. When the, whenever any member of the civilian press was giving an interview, there had to be a uniformed person nearby to listen, to make sure that everything that was being said was okay. Um, do, do you, can you talk about any specific stories where you kind of remember mm. s- someone coming or, or something crazy that happened at the base? Um, well, let's see. Let's see. There were a few, there were a few different sort of manifestations of that because it, it took different shapes. There was all different kinds of censorship, but like, I would say that my, I wrote a, a story once that I thought was going to be totally good to go because it didn't say anything bad specifically, right? But I went out to a patrol base. I went out with the commander because our commanding general would go visit patrol bases here and there and shake hands with the soldiers and he needed to have a photographer with him because he was a media whore. And um, so I would go out there with him, and while I was out there, I would try to get personal interest stories and interview the soldiers so that, you know, do all that stuff. So I interviewed a soldier, and I asked him what the most exciting thing had ha- had been that had happened with since they would do, like, multi-week rotations out at these sort of remote command outposts. And, um, and then, you know, so it would be, like, a couple of weeks of kind of being cut off from everybody else with your team. And then you come back in. And so I was like, what's been the most exciting thing that's happened in this rotation? And he was like, well, I saw a sheep fly. And I was like, tell me more. (laughs) And so he told me a story of how he and his unit had, um, they had located an unexploded improvised explosive device on um, a bridge, uh, or was just past a bridge. And uh, they had called in the explosive ordnance disposal team to get rid of it. And they basically like had to kind of stand guard to make sure that people knew as they, if civilians came by that they knew like, don't walk there. There's a bomb, you'll die. And um, this herd of sheep came along and you can't tell a herd of sheep there's a bomb. <laughs> So they couldn't. They couldn't do anything. Uh, so the herd of sheep walks over the bomb. Poof, explosion. And he, this soldier is telling me this, and he was like, and this fluffy legless thing just flew over my head. And I was like, well, if that's the most exciting thing that's happened to you, that's great. Because it means the terrorists aren't actually winning here right now. (laughs) (laughs) That was (laughs) So I wrote this story, like, basically from the perspective of things have been so quiet at FOB, you know, at Command Outpost Ludafia, that... um, that a, f- a flying sheep is the most exciting thing that's happened here. Isn't that great? And my editors, my bosses were like, no, just no, 
just no. <laughs> I was like, but why? And they're like, you know exactly why. And I was like, come on. And they're like, no. And I was like, implications for the metaphor on that too are very, yeah. very deep. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It was so deep. And they were, yeah. So it was, um, that was the kind of thing. And then I would write commentaries every now and then that would also skirt that boundary. And every now and then, you know, there was a while when the commanding general for our division actually really liked my sense of humor and my commentaries, and he would, would let we would let things go. And then we had a new commanding general came in, come in, the media whore, mm-hmm. and he was very particular about what opinions got put out, and so mm-hmm. I was banned from writing commentaries, <laughs> mostly because I had written um, I had written this piece on. Um, military safety and basically like laughing at what a sort of oxymoron it was Um, and you know (laughs) and safety rules in general and and it had run in the paper um, right next to the commanding general's safety commentary (laughs) (laughs) and I was it's just and, and I had also had a, a new public affairs officer who was much more afraid of consequences than the previous one, who was just sort of like, whatever, they'll deal with it. And this one was like, what? You just know, just know. And he wouldn't even tell me in person that I wasn't going to be just kind of, there was like four people working in our office and he like had one of the other ones tell me. <laughs> so it you know it was just a it was a total and perpetual mind fuck you know like be good enough at what you're doing to do it you know do it well but don't ask why and don't don't question what you're being told and so we all developed very dark senses of humor in the public affairs office sure. yeah. you know because if you can't laugh about it you know you become suicidal and as we've seen a lot of veterans go that route, I think that's my sense of humor has been one of the things that saved my ass. Yeah. You know, even other musicians and artists um, in the veterans community have really suffered. And I think the fact that I've been able to put humor in what I do now um, has been able to help kind of bridge the gap a little bit just to make it like just a little bit more understandable to people who haven't been through it Hmm. you know yeah i was gonna ask about that i can imagine your music is really helpful and therapeutic for the people that you served with or what what is the population like that that you're in connection with still um most of the people that i'm closely in touch with now are much more politically aligned with me Mm -hmm. um not everyone, but some, most of them are. Mm-hmm. And I've found that, you know, I've written certain songs that are not particularly political, but that are still about my military experience that they relate to, uh, or that, you know, people who don't necessarily identify themselves as anti-war vets mm-hmm. can uh, relate to. And um, I would say... Uh, you know, my anti-war vet community really appreciates the, you know, more politically charged songs and would prefer that I was even more politically charged, probably. Um, 
and I think I actually have gotten more so over the last few years. I started writing like songs just more about like my personal social opinions. And these days with the situation being what it is, I'm just like, I don't have time for that shit anymore. Like it's all politics now. It's all political. There's literally nothing I could write about that isn't some kind of political. And so, um, so that's, I'm trying to like, again, figure out balance with that, like figure out how to keep what I'm, keep what I'm doing fun, but not like deny the fact that there's so much fucking darkness right now that we're all dealing with and looking at right in the eye every time we read the news, every time. <laughs> it's like the newspaper might as well just say we're all fucked every day every day <laughs> just like here's the news we're all fucked moving on <laughs> you know because it's like there's nothing you can do anymore like i think about this a lot I'm like i can call my congress people but shit is so clear these days like you either are evil or you're not <laughs> and it's like there's no number of phone calls i can make To someone who has decided to be on the side of fucking anti-human, anti-earth evil. Well, I'm just a little cog in your machine. Yes, I'm just a little cog in your machine. Just a little cog, help you live high on the hog. I'm just a little cog in your machine. you can do is threaten them with having no more money and if I can't do that then what can I do all I could you know and so I write these ridiculous songs and feel really frustrated but like I don't believe in the political process as much as most of my left-leaning friends hate to hear that I just don't and I'll, I'll still contribute to it and participate in it because it's what we got but I don't think that it's you know yeah, I don't think that if Hillary had gotten in, things would necessarily be great either. So it's like, um, you know, I think right now the situation is fucking dire, but it was kind of dire before. It's just people it's are, you know, it was, it's been, it's been terrible. Like all of the, all of the, the, the places have been laid for this for so long. Like this table has been set for years and years and Obama was, you know, setting it at a much slower pace and doing it with a much friendlier demeanor and a much smarter way of saying things. But he was still drone bombing children in fucking Yemen. Like that's one of the most evil things I can think of to do. And, you know, it's it's just, I think to me, it's becoming more and more about the local and the internal and the individual and the community because we just can't affect change on that large of a scale without doing it on a small scale first, you know? I was a soldier in your war, but I'm not fighting anymore. I'm no longer just cogging your machine. Well said, bottoms up. I read some good news. The sun came up today. Hey! Oh, oh and the moon last yeah. night too. Did you guys see the moon? The moon was hey. epic. Oh. I spent I've spent some time howling at the moon this year. That's yeah. for fucking sure. Oh my god. Yeah. Well, I want to say this has been incredible. <laughs> Thank you so um, much, yeah. Emily Yates, for blessing our Oakland studio with your presence. 
Um, would you be willing to sing us a song? I would love to sing you a song. Yes. It'll awesome. just be hard to figure out which song to sing. Okay, great. Um, so, see, uh, featuring uh, Emily Yates on ukulele. I'll tase you, bro. I'll tase you in your face. I'll tase you, bro. If you don't get out of my space, I'll tase you, bro, just so you know. In case you were thinking about getting even just a little rapey, I see you everywhere. We work together. I see the way you stare you think you're clever but you don't know we'll never be alone in case you were thinking about getting even just a little rapey i'll tase you bro i'll tase you in your face i'll tase you bro if you don't get out of my space I'll tase you bro just so you know in case you were thinking about getting even just a little rapey a kazoo solo there and I just realized as I was doing this I don't have a kazoo so but here's what we'll do yell out the window of your car don't care who you are you won't get very far in case you were thinking about getting even just a little rapey I'll tase you bro I'll tase you in your face I'll tase you bro if you don't get out of my face I'll tase you bro just so you know in case you were thinking about getting even just a little rapey I'll tase you bro I'll tase you in your neck I'll tase you bro so don't be acting so suspect. I'll tase you, bro, just so you know. In case you were thinking about getting even just a little rapey. I'll tase you, bro. I'll tase you in your balls. I'll tase you, bro. If my back's against the wall 
I'll tase you, bro, just so you know. In case you were thinking about getting even just a little rapey. Just in case you were thinking about getting even just a little rapey. <laughs> oh God, I love that. Wow. That was the loose version. <laughs> the version without a kazoo. So good. That was outstanding. Mm. Will you play Thank another you. one for us? I will. I will. I love songs. Aren't songs great? Yes. <laughs> this is it. medicine. Oh, it, this, is, this is totally doing my soul all the, th- the good it needs. Also, yeah, yeah, music, weed. Meditation, yeah. was the, the holy trinity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should I do try not to be a dick with the new verse? Yeah. It's roughly new. It's Great. a roughly new verse. Yeah. All right. My public service announcement that got out of control. <laughs> <laughs> In 20 odd years of living, I had had the chance to learn some of life's lessons like when you go outside wear pants i'd given quite a bit of thought to our statutes and laws but there's one simple principle that supersedes them all it's try not to be a dick So others don't get sick Stay out of the fast lane If you are driving slow It won't always be easy Cause other drivers suck I know Just try not to be a dick When you stand on the escalator Would you please step to the right So that if I need to pass you We won't have to fight The concept's pretty simple, a child could comprehend That you should turn your blinker on before you round the bend And try not to be a dick Cover your mouth when you sneeze so others don't get sick And stay out of the slow lane if you want to pass I'm here to take it easy, man, so please stay off my ass and try not to be a dick. So I've written many new verses for this song over the years. (laughs) So much material out there. Yeah, as it turns out, there are a lot of ways in which people are dicks, including myself. That's why this song started as a note to self. Uh It went a little bit awry. (laughs) Um, so this, if I played you all of the verses I've written over all of the years, it would probably take longer than we actually have. Um, it would take most of the day. And so in order to save time, I will play the most recent verse, which is dedicated to our dick administration and all their dick policies and their dick supporters and Dick Cheney too, for good measure. How about that? (laughs) All right. If you're a white supremacist, sit the fuck back down. If you act like a Nazi, you might get punched in the mouth. 
And if you're a white liberal, you might not think you're racist. But we all say some fucked up things on a pretty regular basis. So try not to be a dick, please. Don't hate on the Muslims or the Jews or the Sikhs. And don't judge other people for the color of their skin. And if they are a refugee, goddammit, let them in. Just try not to be a dick. It's all about the trying. I always try to emphasize try. Because people come up to me and they're like, Emily, don't be a dick. And I'm like, I'll try. I make no promises. <laughs> it's all about the effort. So if you're one of those people, as all of us can be, just kindly take a minute and lend your ear to me. You don't have to be perfect, neither do I. All that we can really do is give it a try and try not to be a dick. Exactly. Cover your mouth when you sneeze so others don't get sick. Stay out of the fast lane if you are driving slow. It won't always be easy cause other drivers suck, I know. Just try not to be a dick at work. Try not to be a dick or at home. Try not to be a dick in your car. Try not to be a dick or at the bar. Try not to be a dick. We'll keep singing it till everybody gets it. Try not to be a dick or till we run out of time. Try not to be a dick with Emily. <laughs> Try not to be a dick for the children. <laughs> Try not to be and grab them by a the dick songs. again. Try not to be with my adorn and kin limbo. Try not to be a dick. And we're all just telling you. Try not to be a dick. One more time with feeling. Try not to be. <laughs> <laughs>